I'm Brian Hyatt. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. This year was the 20th anniversary of the beloved Fox teen drama, The O.C. And there's a great new book out called Welcome to the O.C., The Oral History by my colleague, Alan Seppenwall. And The O.C., of course, had a major musical element as well. The show started in 2003, and the whole mini-rock boom of that era, whether it was Death Cab for Cutie, The Killers, Franz Ferdinand, or The Shins, or whoever, felt very connected to that show thanks to its consistently amazing soundtrack and the fact that its lead character, Seth Cohen, played by Adam Brody, was the archetypal indie rock nerd of the era. So especially because it's the holiday season, or what the OC called Chrismica, today I'm going to be talking with the OC creator Josh Schwartz, who also went on to co-create Gossip Girl, among many other shows, as well as Alexander Patsavis, now legendary music supervisor who worked for the OC and many other shows and movies. And as we'll discuss, pretty much single-handedly turned music supervisor into a high-profile and widely sought-after job. These days, she's in charge of music for all of Netflix's original series. But here's my conversation with Josh Schwartz and Alexander Patsavis. One of the key decisions early on was making Seth Cohen a indie rock fan instead of a hip hop fan or these other ideas that were originally being uh, thrown around. How, how did that come about? I'm going to say the key decision was hiring Alex, which I was going to agree to. But that too. Yeah, I think actually it, it, we could roll it back even a little bit further in that Orange County obviously had a pretty vibrant music scene at that time. And it just wasn't necessarily what I was personally listening to, although I, obviously a lot of great bands came out of that scene. And so the idea was to use music in the show that was less about the region and more about the interior emotional lives of the characters. In the pilot script, there was an Interpol song that didn't ultimately make it in the beginning. There was the Joseph Arthur Honey in the Moon song that was written into the end of the script. So that was always the going to be the musical palette of the show. The Seth Cohen stuff was a little bit of an offshoot of that, a little bit of, oh, this is my nerdy Jewish avatar and way <laughs> into the show. But also a lot of it was born out of Adam Brody's own passions. And back then we were all roughly around the same age. And I thought it was a good idea to hang out with everybody uh, off set, later learned maybe not the best idea over the <laughs> over course of multiple seasons. But at the time, uh, although we're all close and friends and it's all beautiful now. But at, back then, would just listen and eavesdrop on what the actors were talking about or what they were into and writing that into the show. And Brody was very into Bright Eyes and he was the one who put Death Cab on my radar personally and just hearing him talk about it. So I just started writing his feelings about the band into the show. And then the minute we did that and that episode aired and that was like the Tijuana episode, it got like an immediate response from an audience that were either already Death Cab fans or were really responding to this show, offering them music that they couldn't otherwise find. Right. And Josh, maybe you could talk about just your own history as a music fan and what you brought to this show to start with as a music fan. Well, I have a checkered history as a music fan. <laughs> you know, I, I'm pretty on the record that my first concert when I was like 10 years old uh, was Huey Lewis in the News who I loved and like the biggest moment in my pop cultural life was when my favorite actor, Michael J. Fox, and my favorite singer, Huey Lewis, were appearing in the same movie in Back to the Future, and it just, that blew my mind. But I was always a, a fan of music, and obviously as I got older, I grew up in Providence. We had a really healthy college radio station there at the time, WBRU, 
the Brown Indie Rock or college radio station. And so as I got older, that really started informing my tastes. And then when I came out to California for college, the there was the music that was happening at my school. And then there was the music that I was into and living in both of those worlds, similar to our characters, I guess, in a way, in the show. And it just so happened, again, that a lot of the music that we were writing into the show was stuff that I loved that was off my iPod, at least for the first six episodes till I ran out of music. And <laughs> I went to a lot of shows. I did. I literally was like, I have nothing left. It also just worked out that those bands were not at that moment being there was no format for those bands to get played. So there was radio was pretty limited in terms of its playlist. MTV was showing the same 10 videos, pretty confident. Joseph Arthur and Death Cab for Cutie were not making the TRL cut at the time. And so it just happened to, it was, as you said at the beginning, this perfect timing that the music that I was listening to, Alex was turning us on to when she joined us that our actors were listening to was music that was not available anywhere else, maybe a car commercial here or there. And also was the only music we could afford at the time as well. <laughs> right. That's an important point to remember. Always. So Alex came on and, and part of it, although she was shaking her head, you, you have said that you thought you could kind of do it yourself. You were, I think, the youngest person who would ever run a show at that point, and you were making it up as you went along. And so you were confident for six episodes that you could kind of be the music supervisor and then realize that you couldn't. Yeah, I don't know if I thought I could do it by myself. I just, that's how it shook out in the beginning. And it was working for a while. Hey, I love this Dove song. Let's throw that in there. That works. Turn brakes. That song was a couple years older when we used it. Even Phantom Planets, California. California, here we come. Right back where we started from. California. That was born out of, we were, when we were shooting the pilot, Fox wanted to get the show on the air in the summer. So we had this crazy challenge of shoot the pilot, have a writer's room going simultaneously, and deliver a, like a trailer of the first two weeks of what you've shot while you're still in the middle of shooting the pilot with another week to go so they can make an early pickup. And we had the sequence of Ryan being driven from Chino to the lush, beautiful world of Orange County. And originally that my attempt there was in the Interpol song Untitled, which did not deliver the kind of euphoric highs or sell the fantasy of the show. And so we put California in there by Phantom Planet because in our minds, it had been on K-Rock a couple of years prior. We figured people would know it. And when you're making a sales tool like that, you want your executives to lean forward and go, oh, I love that song. Oh, I'm leaning in. This is connecting with me. And when people heard that song, they were like, what is this? I love this song. This is amazing. And you realize, oh, just because we were in our 20s and listening to a certain kind of thing, we were aware of it. And not everybody else was aware of it. And then it just became, this has to be the main title song. And, and it became anthemic in a way that kind of caught us by surprise. Yeah, but at a certain point around episode seven, it was clear my iPod was, I was we're gonna, we've got to go to Huey Lewis. We were running out of <laughs> stuff that was going to go in. And Stephanie Savage, who was producer at the time and my like my boss, she was working with McGee. Later, we would become partners and she would become a writer on the show, not necessarily in that order. But she had just done a show with Alex the year before. 
And so Stephanie was the one who said, I know the perfect person to, you can't do this. This is not going to work for much longer. And our editors had worked with Alex before. And so she just clicked right in and it was an unbelievably smooth transition. And then all of a sudden we'll get into it, I'm sure, and let Alex talk. But then the music just started to rain down. The floodgates opened and all of a sudden I was like a kid in a candy store. I had access to so much music I couldn't even believe. Alex, what was your sort of immediate sense of what kind of music this show was doing? And how, how would how were you classifying it in your mind? When, when you knew what was on the first six episodes or whatever. Yeah. I did know what was on the first. So I had the, which is a very, very rare opportunity to get to join a show like The O.C. very early on in its run. I, I had seen, I had been part of the phenomenon. I had obviously heard the Phantom Planet main title, which like still brings me so much joy and anticipation when you hear that crack. I can visualize the main title in my head. And I think... Like Josh said, I had worked on a show with Stephanie and done both movie and shows with specifically, I think, Norman, Tim and Matt Ramsey. I think pretty Those much our editors, the editorial crew I had worked with before. And what an opportunity to to obviously to get to work with Josh and to get to work on a show that had so much possibility musically and so much sort of natural affinity to soak up music. These characters, the locations, everything was so perfect for a music supervisor. And I don't think I focused on the Huey Lewis so much. I think I probably... <laughs> that was, yeah. <laughs> that was a part of the conversation, yeah. <laughs> Although I think we can dig into that later. We showed up but, in Chuck. We did Chuck together and we definitely got some Huey in there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think Turin Breaks and Doves and Interpol, like these were all bands that I loved too. And I remember how we started was like this endless flood of these homemade compilations that we made back in analog times that were with construction paper. And I would do work on putting together a comp. We would make copies that sort of took all day and made sure they got down to Josh, to Stephanie, and into editorial. And that's how our Josh and I, I think how I remember it, how our conversation started. And we could talk about what fit, what didn't. And from there, really honing in on this, what became like a very sort of indie rock perspective. I'm not sure. I didn't grow up calling it indie rock either, Brian, I called it college rock. When college I was, rock, yeah, yeah. But I think it had a tour quality, a musicians that were writing and performing music. There was certain definitions you could give it that I think ultimately defined the music. It was a, one of the reasons that the OC took off so immensely as a sort of prized venue to promote these acts is because, as I think one of you said, is that there were not the outlets there used to be for this arty, rock-leaning music. Rock radio at the time, and I'm setting the scene for younger listeners here, rock radio <laughs> at the time, all rock radio at the time, was other than outposts like K-Rock in LA, fortunately for you, leaned more heavy. It was, it was the leftovers of new metal and stuff were very prevalent. Modern rock radio wasn't very cool. It was heavy and not fun. Whereas K-Rock in LA, as opposed to the K-Rock in New York with the CK that, that was still around, did have a more indie leaning thing. Mm -hmm. And MTV wasn't really doing it. So there was this void. There was this great music. It didn't have an outlet. And so I think you, you didn't really start out to 
you didn't imagine that it would become this prize promotional spot. You were just picking songs that work with the episode, basically, right? No, it was just right place, right time, and we stumbled into this thing. And as I said, like the response from the audience was so immediate. Even in the pre-social media, early internet days, we could still get that response that people were craving this and excited to have this opportunity to discover new music. Yeah. And I would say in, in addition, we had K-Rock, XRT in Chicago, definitely college stations were certainly there was a fan base for this music, but it wasn't nationally on the consciousness in the same way that we can access music now. It was not at the same pop cultural accessibility as a nighttime teen soap on Fox. Those two things had not really merged. Yeah. I think what came across so much, like Josh and I and Stephanie, the editors, we had so much joy around this music. It was so fun to work on the OC. And after 20 years, it's been so fun to have these conversations and to remember how it felt to have those bands on camera to discuss whatever band we might see. We saw a lot of these bands as they came through town. That was not unheard of. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit older than Josh, but I hung in there too. You, you did. Know. You did. <laughs> it's funny, Josh, when you say the currency of a nighttime soap on Fox, I feel like I also have to explain to what, how <laughs> immense it was. There still was much more of a monoculture. It was pre-streaming. Everyone was watching the OC or it felt that way. It was massively impactful. But Alex, the other thing was, I don't, I was in entertainment journalism at the time, and I feel like one of the things that happened was this sort of superstar music supervisor started to become a thing, in large part because of the OC. I feel like I'm forcing you into too much potential immodesty here. You'll never get immodesty out of Alex. You'll try, but her Midwestern upbringing does not allow for it. But I think, Josh, we can agree, really suddenly the music supervisors seem like a really cool job. I'm not even sure if most people had even heard of it as a job, which is really interesting. I'll speak immodesty on behalf of Alex, who who will not mention that she got like name-checked on girls once (laughs) as like someone was going to get their music in front of her, and that was the coolest thing. We had a moment, Alex. You got name-checked on girls. I had a name-check on Entourage. We really had an HBO moment. (laughs) I I have subsequently, because Alex has moved into a a new job a few years ago and had to hire other music supervisors, which was a very weird new experience. It was like dating after however long or we worked together, 15 years, 17 years, whatever it was. And every music supervisor I've met with either got into the job or was incredibly highly influenced to become a music supervisor because of Alex. Wow. And not just because of the OC, but because of Grey's Anatomy and Twilight and everything that she did. Yeah. I'm going to jump in here for a second. So I started music supervising in the mid 90s and I started with Roger Corman wow. and did like, I don't know, 35 Bucket of Blood 3s, KG3000s, <laughs> like a lot of spinning beds, a lot of, but it was an, an unbelievable education. And I was always really focused on series work on, now we call it series. Back then I called it TV. I've learned new words. That's what happens. <laughs> and I just loved the immediacy of television that Josh and I could hear a band in October and it might air in December or November mm. based on the mix schedule or there was like, that's some Something that I don't think, unless you're working in linear television, can happen in the same way. I think that mu- that superstar music supervision thing in part happened because the cast wasn't available to support a lot of our soundtrack work because they were so busy acting right. and doing stuff. And so I was lucky and got an opportunity to do a lot of interviews. So 
That's also true, just how that came to be. But it was heady times. We moved to the center of marketing plans for labels and publishing companies. And what an interesting shift that was. And it was something that Josh and I both experienced. And we can talk about going to hear the Coldplay record or the debut, the Beastie Boys. But I started to receive a lot of calls about marketing plans. Not sure I understood what a marketing plan was. I certainly understood what the gig was to try to get the very best song in a scene. But my focus was very, very music in series, music in film, and not so much understanding this whole new thing that was developing right around this time. We had no idea what we were doing is what Alex is trying to tell you. (laughs) Sure we did. To a degree. I think the lead of a story I wrote for EW at the time about how important TV and the OC in particular had become to music promotion was about that Rooney episode. Everybody, every label, every publisher, every band, after Rooney, the Rooney episode aired, of course, requested their own. That was the first thing on everybody's mind. I remember when that episode aired and someone, maybe it was out, someone put something in front of me that was like, album sales spiked 400% after the episode. It was some crazy thing. But also that idea of the Rooney episode led us to build the bait shop in season two. Right. And then just basically talk about that was the real candy shop and have all of these bands. Newport Beach never got such uh, uh, live music passing through uh, as they did during the bait <laughs> shop days. And so, you know, we're like, could we get Modest Mouse? We got Modest, you know, the one I really remember, aside from Death Cab finally coming on and that coming full circle and just how gracious Ben Gibbard and the whole band was about the fact that they became known as the OC House Band to some of their audiences, even though they had existed for years prior to us, have had a long life long after the show went off the air. And I'm sure for them at times, it was a little bit like, hey guys, we are more than just Seth Cohen's favorite band. But they were very gracious the whole time. But the one I really remember at the bait shop was when the Killers came on. They had not premiered yet. That was one where Alex was like, listen to this album, this band. Because you know, a lot of it is also working in advance. The episode's going to air in October. So Alex is going to, with Sonia, she's going to reach out to all these labels. Who do you have who you think could be right for the show whose albums might are coming out around this time. And so the Killers played us the album. Obviously, every song on that first album was like an incredible banger hit. And we put them on the show and it timed out that Mr. Brightside was being performed. At the bait shop, on the OC, like as it was premiering on K-Rock, I mean, it it felt like you couldn't have, it felt like kismet, but obviously it was actually Alex doing all the math behind the scenes. But that was one where it just like the culture and the show were just really aligned musically. It was good music supervision to have heard that album and picked out Mr. Brightside and said, you guys need to play this on the show, obviously. I actually remember, Josh, that we listened to it Coachella. I think we, I think I had demos. I okay. think had demos pre-release and they were still wow. working on them and the label had released them to us right around because I remember driving and listening to it and I think we listened to it right after and I think we made the decision to it's so hard to to think precisely about what happened 20 years ago but there's <laughs> yes. that stick yeah. out yeah it really was interesting to try to time 
to try to time the bands. I said it a million times in the old days, but music time and TV time are not the same time. Shooting in Manhattan Beach, we were getting right, getting bands there at six in the morning, at seven in the morning. Oh, that, they, yeah, yeah. They probably Mars was not happy with the TV hours that we were, yeah, production. Yeah. Everyone wanted to do it. And they probably had a date in L.A. the night before. Then they probably were picked up quite early, did their performing all day, essentially, and then probably had another gig the, the next night. It was a real touring. But I do remember sometimes we had the timing exactly right. And then we talked about this in the book, in our oral history. I don't know if you do a little intro, but explaining that we have an oral history. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So we were very honest in the book that sometimes we were up our own ass, too. <laughs> And so we had the Walkman appearing <laughs> on the show, stuff. and the rat was out, but not. And we were like, everyone knows the rat now. So we made them play a different song off of the album, and also a great song. But like, we had the perfect moment to play the rat, and ninety nine point nine percent of the world hadn't heard it yet. And but because point zero one percent had, we were like, surely we must go play something else because it's already known we got a little up our own ass a couple times we did a little <laughs> precious but that's okay that's all right the rat was very big in like the rolling stone offices at the time but yeah it was not a, a nationwide sensation that people would have <laughs> no, thought, no. thought was yeah. over obvious for that's actually a tragic event for the song the rat is actually if you look back in the history it's possible that the rat would have been as known as you thought it was had you only allowed them to put <laughs> sorry but I was going to say that it is remarkable and says so much about how high priority you were for the labels that you had the demos to the first Killers album. That's how locked in they were on getting the two of you in on a band. It's really interesting. Demos, we would pre-releases, we would sometimes go to labels to hear music that they, this was, I think, right around Chuck later, Josh, maybe was when they started to be able to protect it a little bit. But in, in the OC days, they were not watermarking music yet in the same way. Had a lot of covert operations to go hear some cool music for sure. One very distinct memory I have about that. There was a shift, right? So in the beginning, we experienced this with Gossip Girl with locations. Like when we made the pile of Gossip Girl, we were allowed to shoot at Grand Central Station because it's a public event. And one guy at the Palace Hotel knew the books and was like, okay, you can shoot here. And no one else in New York City really wanted us to shoot anywhere. And then when the show came out and was successful, suddenly everybody would let you shoot at their locations. The OC had a similar thing where we were picking music. And again, this was an opportunity for the bands to make money that they might not ordinarily make. But no one was really like offering us our music. And I remember late in season one, it was the Las Vegas episode, I believe. And Alex was like, hey, how would you feel about premiering the Beastie Boys' new song? They have a new album coming out, and they'd really love to premiere the song on the OC. And just having my mind blown of, wait, what? This is like one of my all-time favorite bands who have the most kind of incredible taste. And they're asking us to premiere their song. That was a real shift in season two, U2 had a new song coming out that they wanted premiered on the show. That was insane. And, and there was one time, uh, I think it was during season two, Alex and I were invited up to the Capitol building to listen to the new Coldplay album. And it was literally the two of us on a couch and a couple of executives. And they played us the entire album and said, pick a song and we will hold it for you. And the album hadn't come out yet. And I remember when Fix You came on and looking mm -hmm. at Alex and I was like, I think this song feels like the show. Lights
And for Capital, I think they were like, what? It's like the fifth song. It wasn't the single. It wasn't the second single. It wasn't really the third single. But we were just, this feels like the show. It felt like it had the tone of the show. You could, it was cinematic. And that was also just like a really heady moment of just being able to like, okay, pick song. And then it became a single for them after the fact. And it worked great against, against Picture. Yeah, it was not the best known at the time, but it has since become it's the song that BTS randomly covered. It's one of their absolute biggest songs. So good call on that one as well. We killed Caleb Nichols to that. He drowned in a pool to that song. Right. What else could happen to that song? <laughs> no, I think if anything, it's this show's like, we were just so thoughtful about it. We had so many conversations. We haven't gotten into the covers conversation yet, but that mm-hmm. was another thing that we spent a lot of time on. And really, I think, Josh, I remember a lot of times when we talked about covers, it was like during your outline phase, outlining storyline. And it takes time to do a cover. Covers were not quite as prevalent back in 2003 as they became later. And to clear the publishing to get the right version, like all of that took time. So we had those conversations far in advance of when those episodes would hit the editing bays, which was typically in series work when you would really get into it up until then, for me anyway, from in my experience. And then we really, we thought about it very early. How would we get that right song for the right moment? What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. No, in season one, Anna was leaving for Pittsburgh. We're like, we want this to feel like a John Hughes moment. And I was like, what if we play if you leave? But but someone could cover it. Who could cover? Not a surf. Off to the races. In producing these covers for us that were amazing. Was that the beginning of it? That's what I was going to ask is how oh, the yeah. covers things got started as a thing. That's the first one I can remember, but it's 20 years ago, so I might be wrong. <laughs> I think we did Maybe I'm Amazed. Maybe I'm a girl, maybe I'm a lonely girl who's in the middle of something. That was the end of season one, yeah. Yeah, with Gem as well. I think we we had some covers that went down on the comps that were pre-existing. Yes, yeah, um, not a lot of credit for the... People think we commissioned the Ryan Adams cover of Wonderwall. But we, that was that already existed and we used that. That already existed. But it was yeah. like such a fun little, fun moment for the fans, I think. And sometimes nothing expresses like, you know, that John Hughes moment more than a song that, you know, that is a little bit older with a modern take on it, a modern vocal, a twist, right? The female version of what you know is a, is a song sung by a man. Anyway, that kind of stuff was so fun to do. It's appropriate for the holiday season that this all went so far that you ended up having an entire album of Christmas songs, which is amazing. It says it all about how, how deep this all went. I still play the Guster's cover, Carol of the Meows, for my, my kids. It's their favorite this time of year. Yeah, that one we didn't even really do covers for. It was just who's got songs out there. Right. that are Christmas songs that feel like artists that would be on the show. They weren't even particularly... I think a couple of people did submit some more 
on, on the nose Chris Mika songs, but Chris Mika is a hard word to rhyme to. So I don't know that there was that many that were that successful. It was more just the spirit. Yeah, not an easy lyric. And I think <laughs> up until that, really, the many of the Christmas songs were either very traditional or like a real pop vocal. And the indie rockers didn't lean into the holiday songs quite as much, but it was fun to put together. It was also before everybody had a holiday album and the holidays were just whatever it's become now. Movies and television shows and albums and... All the things. We predated Holiday Spirit. That's how long ago. There was another song that you were pretty ahead of the curve on was Hallelujah, which is already a classic song, but I, the way you used the Jeff Buckley version. And, and Josh, I know that had personal resonance for you, obviously. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. Yeah, it was literally it was on the day that Ben McKenzie got cast on the show. My uncle, who I was very close with, passed away. And in the year that he was sick, that Jeff Buckley song was a real kind of tonic for him, something he listened to that gave him a lot of solace. So even though that song had been around, even though it had been licensed, uh, it just had so much personal meaning that I wanted to put it in the show to honor him. And then obviously in season three, when Marissa died, having Imogen Heap, who we should talk about, because I think that's, that Imogen Heap hide-and-seek is probably the most resonant, enduring song that we have on the, that came out of the OC, or top two or three, mm. for sure. Anyway, so having her come back, having done the season two finale, and then do the Jeff Buckley Hallelujah kind of piece for us, brought that full circle. I was going to ask about the Imogen Heap because that was extremely key. I think you said that when you heard it for the first time, you instantly knew it had to be on the show. Yeah, this is one of those. You get your weekly gift, your Christmas gift that would come every week, which was <laughs> one of Alex's mixed CDs. It was coming out of the Chop Factory and it's little color-coded. Every, every week had a different, or every episode had a different envelope. And by the way, she had to do one for every episode. And we did 27 episodes in the first season. We did 25 in season three. There was a lot. Wow. They had a get on top of a lot of music. And each one had 15 to 20 songs at least on it, maybe more. Anyway, Imogen Heap, Tide and Seek was on there. I had never heard it before the moment I heard it. I was like, oh my God, Alex, this song is so perfect for the show. I don't know where it's going to go, but it has to be on the show. Can you please, please ask her to not, let, or them, or whoever it was that was behind this amazing and, song. And I will, not, will get into that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, can you please not ask them to not license it to anyone else? On the, uh, and, and just hold it for us. And I promise you, we will find a place for it. And then, and then obviously the end of season two, wrote it into one part of the episode. And then our editor, Norman Buckley, actually had the idea to repeat, use it at the very end when Marissa shoots Trey. And then that became the part of it that really made it iconic and got parodied on Saturday Night Live randomly 12 years later and people knew what it was and got it and that's when we were like oh this moment really worked if you can get parried on snl out of context 10 years plus later and people <laughs> get the reference but yeah ask alex please don't let anyone else use it and somehow she was able to achieve that how did you do that to be on the oc by the time that episode aired was important to artists uh, i think they knew that we love music and we're definitely going to use it as fans and also to really enhance the storyline and the characters. And so it was a very natural fit. And and I know we've said it, but artists were quite excited to be on the show at this point. Imogen was repped by a, a woman named Marisa Baldi. And we use quite a bit of music on the show that she represented. She had 
amazing years. And Imogen was part of, of, of the group of music she represented and was a close friend. And we made the ask. Usually... If you make that ask, you you hold it with some cash, and that is a more typical way to do it. And you're, please reserve this. But we didn't do that. They trusted we would use it. In the book, Imogen talks about how important that moment was to her as well. But that's how it came about. And the, those were demos, too, actually. Those I, was say, I didn't know until I read the, I wasn't aware until I read the book, or was reviewing the book, that Imogen was, I think, those was unsigned at the time. And held everything. And then all of a sudden her music was like on the homepage of Apple Music. And she was like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's a good bet. Very cool story. I'm glad that I'm glad she told it. As it became this sort of marketing priority for the labels and they were deluging you with music, did there ever, was it ever a conflict between these people are trying to use our show to promote their music, but we just want the best thing for a scene and there's some kind of business imperatives clashing here? Did that ever become an issue? I don't think so. I don't think so either. I, th I think first and foremost, the reason the music still so beloved today and why we're here is because we really thought about how it worked to picture. And as we talked about, like endless conversations about what cover should it be? Who should do it? Should they do the rat? We really, we <laughs> they should have done the rat. That's my takeaway. <laughs> we really made a meal out of sort of thinking about it. And I think certainly there were some hopes and dreams that were crushed. I said uh, no. You know, Two people as far as what single was used, was was this artist going to be used? And I felt like intensely protective of the art of the show. And I know that Josh, you had really strong opinions about it. Yeah, I mean, I think even places where we were like. Oh, it wasn't written into the script, but like U2 wants to put their song on the show. Fucking U2. I don't know if we can swear on the show, but I'm saying like, I, I don't think it's a compromise to put one of the all-time bands and figure out how to get their song to work on the show. Same with the BC Boys. So yeah, I don't think we, I think even when the show had its creative struggles on season three, which we go into in great detail in the book, the music always remained consistent and the music always was the, was the most reliable part of our storytelling engine there, even as we were hitting kind of story burnout in season three. And I think like... It was a refuge for us, for sure. It was always mm. fun. It never was not fun. It was fun. When we did a series of soundtracks that we worried over the sequence and we've got, we got to, we have to include the great bands and the big moments and, and how should it roll out and how should the viewer listen? Because I think we always knew that the viewer listened too. And that was another really fun thing that we spent quite a lot of time on was those sequences, the artwork. How are we going to cut some of our favorite babies from the sequence? Oh, those are, so yeah, those right? are tough conversations back then. Yeah. Now just the whole thing would go out on Spotify and it's every song that ever appeared in the show. And you, you wouldn't, I guess that's great too for fans, but there was something about curating those soundtracks and really torturing yourself and going, like the 88, you're like, this was just a fun song. It wasn't necessarily the most epic moment of the show, but it, but we needed something upbeat because otherwise everything was going to get a little too heavy. It was just, it was, that is a lost art, I think. The mixtape, the mixed CD, whatever you want to call it. It's, yeah. It's, like you a, have so much choice. Like a journey through the season or a journey through like the, I actually, I enjoy being able to reference every song in a series or a movie, but I think it highlights the music better if you can make some choices. And obviously with the series, like the OC with hundreds of songs in a season, we had lots and lots to pick from. 
feel like the bands who later on were reluctant to do it, the Arcade Fire, Clap Your Hand, Say Yeah, Arctic Monkeys, I think that was just a case of you being the victim of your own success with these bands, because it's because they knew how big it could be and how much it could associate them with it that they turned it down. So it's this kind of ironic thing. You created the problem totally. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I say, got it. It wasn't like we were offended. You're just, oh, we've become what we beheld. We're the mainstream now in a way, which is obviously a good problem to have because it means you've been successful at something, but there is a trade-off. We read, I remember one day, like there was a, just an interview with Clap Your Hand to say, yeah, where they went out of their way to say that they would never license their song on the, on the OC. We didn't, I hadn't even asked them. So we ref, we called them Clap Your Hands and say no from that point on. And obviously things worked out for Arcade Fire. They didn't need our help. Yeah. Clap your hands, say yo. I think we're very, had a real throwback ambivalence about their success already. They had trouble handling their blog success, let alone OC success. I think for their own psychology, they made the, they made the right decision. They made the right choice. No, and we did an adaptation of John Green's Looking for Alaska. It was actually the last thing Alex and I worked on before she moved into her new position. And, and it was set in 2005, which was the year the book came out. And so we actually got to use that clap your hands, say yes song. There. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's great. So it came and full just, circle. I was going to say, subsequently, there was a change of heart, but Ah. you you said it better. And just a a couple things before I let you go to your impending holidays. I love your sort of half-joking pitch, Josh, for for a return to these characters in middle age. Is is there any world where anything like that happens, or is that really just a goof? I think the real nice thing about this 20th anniversary is that it's given us, we talked a lot in the book that when the show ended, it ended after four seasons. It burned bright, but it burned fast. It felt like we'd, I'd failed. And 20 years later, people still want to talk about the show. Some, in some regards, more, it feels like, than they did even when the show was on. Mm. And the number of people that we hear from, who specifically around the music, say, I discovered all of my favorite bands because of the show. It's still the music I listen to. There's a moment where you're really open to music and then you lock in and then that just becomes what you listen to for forever. And we got to be that for some people. And obviously now that it's on streaming, there's a new generation of audiences that can find it. All of that to say is, can really appreciate the legacy of the show now and be grateful for it and just want to take that as the win. And I think trying to return to it and I don't know, we had lightning in a bottle and I think we just want to hold on to that legacy for as long as we can. I mean, the other way people would be pushing for, could push for a full reboot, just the, the thing again with new characters, and that, that would be the other. We did that on Gossip Girl. We didn't, we weren't the writers on, we produced it. And I think for people, and the show was really smart and well cast, but ultimately I think people, when they come to a show that has the same title as the show that they watched, they want to see those characters. Obviously they can, they, so that I think is the thing more so. And Gossip Girl, we felt like had actually a, a concept that could, could reboot. The OC was so singularly tied to those characters, those actors, that moment in time. As much as I would love to do an episode that, you know, a Christmas special that opens with Seth and Ryan getting vasectomies together, uh, middle age, we'll probably take the win at this point. And then finally, do you ever, in the years after the show or even now, do you hear songs and be like, you know what, that'd be perfect for the OC? Alex? Yes and no. I think, like Josh was saying, it was such a specific moment in time. Certainly, so many of these artists have grown up to be iconic. But there, so that's the no. The yes is yes. There's there's a certain attitude or or instrumentation or vocal that I always recognize as very OC. I, I would say just on the flip of that, there are songs from the show that are almost still are like too emotionally acute for me 
to listen to. It's like those songs that just from your senior year in high school and you hear them and it's like, it's almost too much. You know, it takes you back. It's a lot of emotions. You know, the Patrick Park song that was the series finale, Life is a Song. To let go of everything we used to know. I hear that, get a little teary-eyed, Joseph Arthur, even hide-and-seek. I mean, there's songs that are still so, I remember so vividly and feel so alive to me still that they're, they're almost too painful to hear. They're, there's too much emotion still in hearing them, and that's the magical thing about music. It can just instantly take you back. And uh, it's the bring it full circle to Back to the Future. Music <laughs> is the best time travel that we have. And every once in a while, getting the DeLorean is firing up the OCE mix one or mix two and instantly being back in that time. And I still have conversations with all the time with music fans that it's really cool that that in 2023 and I'm sure in 2024 and beyond were raised on the OC or just it meant a whole lot to them and they really want to talk about it. And I'm always excited and it's just so fun to have this to have the conversation and to go back and talk about artists or songs or moments. And yeah, super special. Thank you so much for joining me as the holidays approach. It's really fun. Merry Christmas. <laughs> and that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.